Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet where so many things are happening. It can feel overwhelming. Uh, we're at the end of a year that was tumultuous for climate. Uh, we're, we're at the end of a, we're in the early stages of a century that's going to be tumultuous for climate and biodiversity. It's often, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and uh, paralyzed sometimes. And I brought together a few folks to just explore uh, paths forward, ranging from poetry to blogging. I still call it blogging, even though no, I'm glad. I'm glad Sam might agree. Uh, you know, I've been blogging since I started my Dot Earth enterprise at the New York Times back in 2007. And uh, the communication environment is just as turbulent as the uh, actual environment. In fact, maybe more so. So let's just get started here uh, today. I, I'm just wonderfully uh, happy to have on uh, Yvonne Reddick, who's a, a British scholar and poet and uh, filmmaker and creator uh, who is focused on the uh, this Anthropocene question, as I have been for a long time. And Sam, uh, how do you pronounce your last name, Sam? Maddie, M-A-T-T-Y. Yeah. It's pronounced as though there's two T's, but yes, like Croatian originally or something. It sounds like it should be the pilot tone, Maddie, but no, it's Maddie. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I should have asked that earlier. So, and Sam is a, 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 a hypervelocity blogger of, of of good news, stuff that uh, matters that that doesn't really make it through the media filters because you know I've been in the media for forty years. I've been a journalist, and it's very rare for me to, through all that time, if you looked at the stories I wrote for the New York Times and magazines and the like, uh, they mostly are focused on the dire, the things that need to change that aren't changing, and that's the way it should be. But but then we miss the full landscape of what's going on in the world. And that can be incredibly frustrating. So Ed Begley Jr., an actor for decades in the United States, 50 years, uh, he's supposed to join too. He may be tied up because of his new book. Um, so hopefully he'll be on in a few minutes as well. So let, let's just get started. I, I wanted to start by just asking you, like, how did you become who you are so far? And uh, let's start with Yvonne. Uh, you, you know, what drove you into uh, writing and poetry, and then what brought your poetry focus into s something as uh, big and 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 quirky as the Anthropocene? It's quite a long story that begins in childhood, really. So I grew up in Aberdeen. I grew up in the southeast of England, and I grew up in Kuwait. And I grew up in two different oil towns. My father was a petroleum engineer. And at the same time, my family had this interest in outdoor, in the outdoors, in nature, in outdoor pursuits. And my dad was madly keen on hiking. Even in Kuwait, sometimes we'd go for a hike in the desert. And it was this really quite interesting combination of my family members who worked in fossil fuel industries. And yet my mother, who was a biologist and, and had this quite deep understanding of wildlife and plants um, and took me out into the garden and, and into the woods. Um, and I grew up at a time when people were becoming increasingly aware of threats to the environment. Firstly, pollution and conservation issues. These were all over popular culture. I had a game called the Nature Trail game when I was a kid and the threats included litter and rubbish and, and pollution. Um, a little bit later on, there was even an animation on BBC TV for kids about what we call back then the greenhouse effect. So 
Hold on one second, just so I can introduce Ed Begley Jr., sure. who just popped on. Hey, Ed, it's been a while. Yes, can you hear me good. okay? Hi, Andy. Forgive me for butting in. I didn't realize we were live right away. Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's fine. Hand. Yeah. Uh, we were just getting in introductions. Uh, Ed Perfect Begley timing. Jr., uh, actor extraordinaire and a, a green uh, green force for for nature for such a long time. I'm going to put it in the proper format here. So that sounds good. And we're getting a, a we can read your palm in the meantime. Uh, there we go. That's we great. Go. Sorry, I was I, waiting at the wrong link. I guess the link changed at the last minute. Oh, I, I probably screwed something up. But uh, no here. worries, no worries. I'm happy to be with you all. And sorry for interrupting. I'm shutting up and listening to what was being said. Thank you. Okay, great. So, so uh, I was just uh, having Yvonne Reddick, who's a poet, focused on Hi, this on this thing called the Anthropocene. You know, like I, I have been for a long time, and she's in England and has written, written poetry. She's uh, she was just explaining what drew her to writing, and then what drew her to writing about the environment and 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 this question of the human journey on the planet. So I'll just let her get back to it, and then we'll go around the circle. And it's just great to have you all here again. So oh, Yvonne. Well, Yvonne, you were in Kuwait, and I remember, and I've been reading in your work about your family uh, background, your father in, in the oil industry, et cetera. So just, so just get, get, take us a little further through that 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 loop, including sure. Kuwait. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a pretty amazing experience, um, and yeah, I was conscious that I was there as a Westerner, arriving four years after the first Gulf War, and it put me in this quite interesting position as a, a human being and as a concerned person who was interested in environmental issues, I was fully aware that, you know, the civilization I depend on and I am part of is addicted to oil. And yet I was also aware of exactly what it was doing to the climate. And if I think about a lot of the objects that surround me today, in my house, many of these will still be petroleum derived. And I think there's a greater awareness among young people now that there is a need to start moving away from fossil fuels fast. And we're seeing very interesting political things happening at the latest COP, aren't we, with the, the debates surrounding that. Um, so I guess I started my career working on authors who were also environmental activists, and I'd read books like Watership Down when I was a kid, classic children's story about a warren full of rabbits who have to move because there's a housing estate that is going to uproot them from their home, and they have to find a safe place to live. And I think writing brought me to these issues. Um, and the idea of the Anthropocene has interested me for a long time. I know, Andy, you actually had a term, the Anthropocene, right. that predates that very famous article from 2000 about the idea of the Anthropocene. Right. It may be beginning with the Industrial Revolution. And there's a lot of debate recently about what the Anthropocene might be, when it might begin. Some people say, oh, it's definitely linked to capitalism. Other people say definitely the Industrial Revolution and climate change. Another idea is the extinction of large bodied megafauna on the land. Um, there are other ideas surrounding the invasion of the Americas by Europeans, colonialism, slavery. Right. Um, the idea is that it's a massive, massive change to Earth's systems, 
caused by the actions of people, some much more than others. And artists are responding to this and writers are responding to this in really quite creative and fascinating ways. That's great. And and uh, you have a book out come, uh, called Anthropocene Poetry, that, uh, along with your own poems. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. I will, and sure. actually, uh, hopefully we'll get, I have, I've queued up some of your poems and the like, so we can explore that work too. So Sam, uh, Sam Matty, uh, so you're a, a geospatial specialist uh, focused on environmental change and the like, and you, you, you've got some, I've been reading some papers you've been involved with, uh, technical papers, and then you started this thing called the Weekly Anthropocene uh, a while ago, and you moved it to to Substack, where I now live uh, as a blogger. Uh, so, so how, tell, tell us a little quick snippet snippet of your life journey. What what got you into, uh, you know, geography and environmental change and risk, and then how did what made you such a peripatetic and active blogger with this Weekly Anthropocene project? Thank you. Well, I'd say fundamentally, really, who I am ultimately goes back to the fact that my parents chose to homeschool me, sort of the revulse of sort of the religious white homeschooling movement that's pretty common in America. They wanted sort of a more STEM-focused and sort of liberalized focused education, and they wanted to be able to sort of let me learn at my own pace and sort of study ahead of my age level and stuff like that. So I was able to just spend lots of childhood days reading, 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 minutely going through old atlases, which I think started my love of maps, and... Um, Sort of just being able to continue studying and learn at my own pace and that led to uh eventually a really profound interest in environmental science and climate change because yeah. since like a very young age when i went about this i think my first exposure to the issue was an inconvenient truth when i was about seven you know the classic al gore um film and book um so film, film matters yeah yeah and to me i think i actually read the book first and then i read the film or something but the but the, but yeah both were great um yeah. and uh then i sort of realized wow like this kind of this is the planet's on the table. This is something that'll show up in geological time. This is something that is really, really important. Maybe the most important thing, a fundamental change of a fundamental change of the way that the only life supporting planet we know of works. So, um, so I've just was fascinated by that since childhood, studied about it, wrote sort of a very proto, 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 proto version of my current newsletter for friends and family when I was like 10 to 14. Um, just basically me sort of trying to learn about this and process it and share information with other people. Uh, then I, um, I, I mentioned I learned at my own pace, so I was actually able to start college when I was 15 and graduate with my graduate with my, with my bachelor's in environmental science when I was 18. So, um, so that um, that was really helpful as well. And uh, I went, to, yeah, I went to the University of Southern Maine because that was the only college I could walk to from where I lived, and I didn't want to move <laughs> out at 15. Um, and uh, they also had a, and they had a great environmental science department, which was total happenstance because we didn't expect that I would need to walk to college when we moved there. But um, uh, but it, it's amazing, great place, USM, totally can recommend it. Um, and it was while I was at USM, alongside some other stuff, I interned with Maine Conservation Voters, it's a voter registration work in the 2018 midterms, set up a student group, bunch of other stuff. Um, but it was during that period that I started the Weekly Anthropocene. And um, that was, originally it was almost just a form of like therapy for myself, like just going to say, hey, okay, interesting stuff's going on. Like even though like Trump is president, and horrible, horrible stuff is happening. There's actually like record renewable energy installations and we're starting to see some interesting integrations of technology into wildlife conservation and the generally interesting stuff. And yeah, that's grown over the years. And what I have been amazed by is that since 2018, the climate picture has gotten so much better. Pull this up. This is, this should be like 
referenced by ma every major newspaper every week, this story. <laughs> because when I was a little kid knowing about this, we kind of looked screwed. We looked like we were going to build right. coal plants until 2100. The China and Indonesia and India and everyone would build coal plants all the way to industrialize. And we were going to hit like five degrees Celsius warming by 2100, which might have been like a serious, like massive, like threat to civilization level apocalypse. But that's probably not going to happen. It's lots of climate change is still going to happen. But if you look at this graph, like the pre, the pre policy had us online for much, much higher CO2 emissions by mid-century. And policy shifts since before Paris could peak CO2 emissions as soon as 2023. And the latest, <laughs> like, the pledges, the, the, the pledges this year, like, and, and and these pledges, by the way, these aren't just empty worlds. The U.S. actually met its 2020 climate goal that Obama said, mostly even though Trump was president when we met that climate goal and there was really no government action on climate change. We met that just because renewable energy is so economically cost competitive now. Um, right. There's... There's really amazing progress being made. We have cut the expected warming by the end of century in half. And it's hard to focus on that when we've already had like a degree and a degree in change of warming. We're probably going to cost 1.5 degrees in the next 10 years. And we're seeing, you know, climate disasters everywhere. And that is awful. And that is horrifying. And if right. you sort of if you sort of say, hey, wait a minute, it's actually half as bad. It's probably by 2100 going to be half as bad as it looked like it was going to be in, two, in, in 2005. That sounds like you're saying, well, don't worry about it. But no, yeah. like that's sort of like saying, like in, in in a game or something, like a sports game. Like that's like saying, hey, we have points on the board. We're still in this thing. We have a chance to get out there and play. And they're like saying, no, hey, if you say that we're doing anything good or that we have any points, you're saying that like that you're, you're denying the fact that the other team has points. Like like <laughs> right, like right. Th th there's this there's this effort to reduce everything to a binary. So are you saying it's all good or are you saying it's all bad? And what I and like there is a lot of media doing incredibly great and valuable work pointing out the bad things happening. And I don't want to gainsay that at all. And that is very important for identifying problems right. and, and issues and, and being sort of society's warning sign and alarm system. And what I am trying to highlight is like in this chart again, the exponential growth of so many amazing renewable technologies. What I am trying to highlight is that some amazingly good stuff is happening. And there is often good reporting on it, but it doesn't get emphasized. Like it doesn't it doesn't make the front page, it doesn't get the clicks, it even gets headlines that sort of seem negative, even if it's a positive story. Right. So, and and overwhelmingly, this has been like the Paris Agreement was great. Like, there's been some good diplomatic efforts. The Inflation Reduction Act was unbelievably amazing. I I, I wake up out like so, some of you listening probably don't know what the Inflation Reduction Act is, and that is like if you lived in the 1930s and didn't know about the New Deal. Like the Inflation Reduction <laughs> Act that Biden passed in August 2022, that was an amazing last minute political compromise, is unbelievably freaking amazing. Like in my in my opinion. <laughs> Environmental groups should have just closed ranks after that was passed and focused on promoting the Inflation Reduction Act until Biden got reelected and then try to push them on other issues like LNG. Like, because the Inflation Reduction Act is such a big deal. It is uncapped federal tax credits for renewable energy. It is like hardwiring renewable energy into the American economy for the next 10 years. And literally, it will be profitable to build renewable energy in America for the next 10 years, yeah. like regardless of how, how broad our economic indicators go. It'll actually be so, more profitable if there's a recession because there's guaranteed federal money no matter what the broader economy is like. So there's amazing stuff happening. We're making huge progress with the clean energy transition that is already notably reducing the risk of catastrophic climate change. And that means we should go further and faster and learn on what we can do and can do better. But um, and, and the similar stories in wildlife conservation, tiger, blue whale, uh, white rhino, black rhino, and many other populations have increased substantially in the last 10 years. And I'm not trying to downplay the big issues. I'm trying to say we're still sure. in this. The planet's on the table. What we do matters. Well, this so is great. And, 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 you know, I think that's a good transition to Ed. Um, Ed, um, I, I think I first met you uh, 
face to face in the mid nine mid two thousand like two thousand six or so, and then yes. and then you were on my uh, on the New York Times. We did a little we did a little uh, eco chat and and uh, but you go way way back, and, and you've seen uh, this entire curve of environmentalism from the first Earth Day forward, um, and you are endlessly. I think you're both realistic and optimistic at the same time. So when you hear a young guy like Sam, uh, does it? How do you feel? And and maybe for those who haven't followed your career, give a, a quick thumbnail of your, what's in your your book. Ha ha ha! A, a quick sense of like when you think about the environment, where are we at right now? In your sense, well, I want to agree with Sam. You can't overstate the importance of the uh, the. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, it's, it's so important. It's, it's going to do incredible things. And if we can get Biden reelected and uh, go into a second term, we'll do even more. I want to talk about where I've gotten it right over the years, where I've gotten it wrong. Uh, from 1970 on, I've been one... very much. Oh, sorry, we're watching a little clip here. Right? No, I was going to. Uh, I thought I had muted it. Hold on. Uh... No worries. Hey, keep, but... keep going. Keep going. Yeah. There's a lot we got right back in 1970 when I started to take action on Earth Day. But one thing, I won't say we got wrong, we didn't emphasize it right, because the problem is not going to be solved by geezers like me just buying energy-efficient light bulbs, maybe even driving, driving a green car. It takes more than that. And building upon, once again, what Sam said, there's good news I want to stress now. There's plenty of bad news to talk about, and he recognizes it, I recognize it. But the good news is, since 1970, when I started the first Earth Day, in the LA Air Basin, which is a tremendously big area. We have four times the cars, millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. How do we right. do that? We did it with people like me riding the bike and taking the bus and doing all that stuff and changing the light bulbs, all that's true. But right. I'm a photographer, so maybe people can relate. You have, there's a device called a unipod. You wanna get a shot, you want your camera a little bit steadier, something called a unipod, just one leg that telescopes out, you can get a steadier shot. Uh, a, a bipod, if you will, wouldn't do you much better. It's nothing, there'd be no sense to that. But a tripod, three, gives you real steadiness. You can build upon it and do important things with it. And that's how we did everything. That's how we cleaned up the air from 1970, bad air. And that is personal action, very important. And they're all related, they're intertied, of course. Corporate responsibility and good legislation. We did it with the Clean Air Act signed by Richard Nixon, of all people. That's how we did it. That's how we clean up the air in the base. It wasn't just people riding the bike, taking the bus like I did. All that's important. And they relate to said, look, we, we, Ed's riding the bike and Ed's taking it. We need more bike lanes. We need more bus lanes. Legislation did that. The Clean Air Act helped all that. Corporate responsibility, they built they build cleaner power plants. They built cleaner buses and all that stuff. They're all related. It's not one thing just guys, guys buying, you know, compacts, resin bulbs or whatever we did back in the heyday, you know, the, the early days but doing all of it together, personal action, corporate responsibility, and good legislation. That's the most important thing to realize. They have to all be balanced and you got to do them together. But Sam is right. There's plenty of good news. And uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act is the most important thing we could work on and keep in place and in fact, build on. Well, and, and you mentioned the, politi the political reality. You know, po if you really get take a systems approach, to this problem, and you're not thinking that the most important question for the United States of this coming year on climate isn't COP29 or the details, it's who's president and, right. who's, and who's in Congress. And for young people, 
to think about not voting, including, you know, if you have your own personal bias on some little issue. And if you're thinking not to vote or to get disengaged from the system this year coming up, particularly in the United States, that seems crazy. To it me. is crazy. I have friends, uh, you know, very young people, my children's age, young people being in their 40s, you know, 30s and 40s, my grown kids age. And uh, I have a 24 year old, too. But some of them actually voted for Trump. They don't believe in anything he said, but they thought it was funny. They thought it was a funny joke to vote for somebody like that. They actually did that. They cast a real ballot in the real world, voted for Trump. They certainly regret it. And you won't get them to admit it on camera probably these days, but I know they did it. But they told me they did it back in the day. They thought it was funny. They never thought he'd get elected. I didn't think he'd get elected. That's how naive we were about certain things. You know, when Hillary, you know, and uh, others, you know, chose not to go to Michigan and he did, I said, what an idiot. He can't win Michigan. Well, what it shows how smart we are and how stupid he is. Michigan, what's he going to do in Michigan? He's not going to change anything. Of course, that was one of the things that got him the presidency was Michigan. We didn't think it was happening. You know, Michael Moore told us it was happening. He was there on the ground watching it happen. We thought, no, we're not going to lose Michigan. United Auto Workers, we got Michigan locked up. No, we didn't. People right. were disgruntled. They're in these towns where that are closed up shop. The kids are on opiates and everybody's telling them they're a bad guy, a bad woman. And look what we got out of it. So um, we can do it. We just got all work together. And I can't, I'm going to say it until people get it. The Inflation Reduction Act is the most important thing we can work on. Keep it in place. Building. Thank you, Sam. And Thank you both, by the way. And again, apologies to both for coming in, in here, a shot out of a cannon. Thank you. I love everything I'm hearing from these brilliant young people. Thank you. Me too. And, and thank you. I'm loving everything I'm hearing from the brilliant older people too. And, <laughs> and you're doing a great job, Ed. Um, your uh, your book is, I've only just begun to read it because uh, I'm always behind on everything. Uh, but your life has included um, uh, many challenges and many gifts. And and you do a great job of weaving them together. Uh, and I know you're, you've had, you're dealing with a health issue now, Parkinson's, that that um, people my age think about more and more. We're surround I'm surrounded by you know, folks with various challenges like that. And I think about personal sustainability and how that relates to planetary sustainability. It's a, you look at both of those things and you sort of, um, there's lots of parallels there too. How do you make the most of the situation? You, you know, especially in cases like where you can't solve the problem, you know, solving power concerns, it would be great if that happens. But at the same time, we have to live with these things. I had a stroke in 2011 and it was a real wake up call for me in terms. I thought about my stroke in terms of how I think about the planet. You know, what can you change? What can't you change about your life and about our planetary life? And I think it's those are important things, too. The medical experts don't know for sure, but they're fairly certain that toxic elements one of the key reasons people are having so many neurological problems now more than ever, Parkinson's, ALS, all these neurological diseases, MS, uh, and they don't know for certain, but they're fairly certain that toxic elements have a lot to do with it. Well, I, when I was a young kid crawling on the floor, I drank ant poison. I lived next door to a dry cleaner yeah. with perchlorethylene blowing in my window 365 days, 364 days a year. They were closed Sunday. Well, that would make a lot, six days a week. Let me do the math later. <laughs> but uh, I worked over a trike tank, something called trichloroethylene or trike. I worked degreasing parts at this facility. There was no OSHA back then, no Cal OSHA, no OSHA. So there's no 
you know, overhead fan or anything. You just worked with the trichloroethylene tank, degreasing right. parts until the room started spinning. Ed, you got to take a break. I can see you're stumbling. Go outside for 15 minutes, come right. back in and work again. That's just the way it was. And so I, I think, and we'll be proven out by medical experts, but there are many people that think toxic chemicals has something to do with diseases like that. And I certainly subscribe to that notion. And what you just said, by the way, these are things that are going on elsewhere in the world in droves, right. all the places around the planet where they don't have an OSHA. And uh, yeah, I wrote my first environmental story, 1983, my first cover story was on the, the herbicide, the weed killer Paraquat. Oh boy. Which is linked to Parkinson's now. Um, but yeah. But there were there were young there were young uh, field workers in, in Trinidad and elsewhere just spraying this stuff, you know, without any any of the protections that, that we now have. So so I, that, those are really important issues too. And I got uh, my share of Paraquat being a pot smoker back in that day. Oh right, I no that that was one reason I was I, I was drawn <laughs> to that story. It was uh, controlling marijuana in Mexico at the same time. And I talk about addiction in my book because it's part of my story. Let me be clear. This is a bit of an environmental book in many ways. I certainly talk about the environment, but it's a memoir and it's a humorous work. But a lot of stuff is very serious. And one of the most serious aspects of the book that uh, you see the cover of behind me there over on this yep. side, sorry, um, yep. the, is addiction. And we are likewise addicted to oil. We are likewise addicted to fossil fuels like alcohol can do with people who are addicted and alcoholics or addicts. It gives you a great ride at first, but then it turns on you and it turns on you bad and everything that it, you think it gave you, it takes that away and more. That's the problem with fossil fuels. What a miracle. Look at what we've done. We built the Empire State Building with high sulfur coal, you know, steel made from that. We built the George Washington Bridge. We did all these wonderful things, but we can't do that. We can't sit by and not say anything when other countries around the world, China and others are doing the same thing. Well, you built all your Brooklyn bridges and all your 59th Street Bridge with high sulfur coal. What are you telling us to do? Right. They exactly. don't have to do that. They got to leapfrog over that bad technology, get to better technology that makes more sense. And to a large degree, they're doing it. They're certainly building power, uh, you know, coal power plants and other things like that. But they're putting a tremendous amount of money into solar. And they're coming to us and asking us how we deal with some of these toxic chemicals, too. They don't want people sick. When they're sick, they're unproductive. And so, there's a lot of interest in many important things that we've been doing here now, finally, over, you know, years since we have ocean, some better rules in the EPA and good, you know, better environmental laws each year. So yeah. we need to, we to help the rest of the world uh, grow, but to do it sustainably. That's great. And now I want to circle back to the arts. Uh, and uh, Ed, you've been involved in the theatrical arts forever. Um, but let's let's just I got to pull up a slide uh, related to. Um, Yvonne's uh, poetry and and her again her background uh, with a family that grew up she grew up in the fossil fuel industry and in a way we all have grown up with fossil fuels in our family uh, yeah. which is kind of what you were just saying so Yvonne is there a particular poem you uh, might want to uh, recite for us uh, sure um i'll read you one called the flower that breaks rocks and this is a family poem that image we had just a minute ago was my dad out on one of the north sea platforms in the mid 80s he was a young lad there he is yeah. he's right at the top he's the one at the front with the big grin um and i was really kind of fascinated and in some ways a bit troubled by the idea that 
this was the industry my father worked in and he was the person whose gift to me was my love of the outdoors and my love of nature. And I've been thinking about how to reconcile those two ideas in a lot of my poems. I don't know if they are reconcilable, really. Um, this is my poem, The Flower That Breaks Rocks. It's a simple poem and it's a family poem. And it's about being out on Ben Nevis, Scotland's highest mountain. He introduced his daughters to Ben Nevis. You take the bearing, line up the arrow, pointing to moonlight gully buttress, minus one gully. We didn't care until dad found us a saxifrage. Its blooms were spokes of the North Star. Saxifrage means rock breaker, nivalis, snow saxifrage. Dainty alpinist chinking her roots into fissures and fractures like crampons in toeholds. But I see now what he could only glimpse, that she and the other alpines, rose roots and pearlworts are scrambling skywards till all that remains for them is cloud. Beautiful. Thank you. And, and again, I, I, this, this idea that um, your your father you know basically has that quality of taking you into nature and also the practical reality of producing petroleum which was uh and remains us even as we make this transition you, there's no swift way off these fuels the addiction the the process of uh finding uh, alternatives that can satisfy global energy needs um it means we we can't get off of uh, these fuels certainly not gas and even coal and in some places and uh so have you talked about this much with your your dad over the over the years that that discount seeming discontinuity or those tensions oh yes um we used to discuss this when i was a teenager and i'd say dad isn't what you do polluting and he'd go oh well how did you get to college this morning you went in the car, didn't you? So I knew that there was oil on my hands as well. I was a consumer of fossil fuels. And even when I didn't have a petrol fuel car and I, I, I tried to take the train everywhere, you know, my, my first book, this is my debut poetry collection. I don't know what's in the ink. Um, commercial ink is usually oil derived. Um, and, I discuss this uh, with my mother quite often now. You know, I'm fascinated with uh, all the stories she has about her time in Oman in the early 80s when she moved over there with my father. My dad has passed away now, so she's the source of a lot of my information about these ideas. And she went, she went to see an oil drilling installation. 
um, which is absolutely fascinating. It's it's mad that she got to see one up close. I did as well as a child in Kuwait. And in some ways, it's quite a weird privilege to, to witness this kind of industry up close because there is no way in Britain you could go out on a North Sea platform and just take a look, right? They yeah. think you're a terrorist and it's also, it's ha a hazardous environment, tightly regulated. Um, if you like, I can read you my poem, uh, Frankincense, which is about my mother's career. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, this is one for my mum. There are a lot of poems in memory of my dad in, in, in this book here. So I thought, oh, I'd better read one for my mum. Frankincense. My mother sounded Earth's deep architecture, listening for the fossil ocean's echo. This was five years before the ultrasound showed me on a grainy screen in Glasgow. She saw the thirsty shrub by a dry well in a desert burnt white, the salt city's hinterland. Oil fields reek of tar, but Omani frankincense is the world's most fragrant, a scent that suggests the magi trekking the desert from Persia to offer the tree's tears to a small god. Women in Salala use it to perfume their linen, she told me, but it looked like a gorse bush. You know, the ones you see here on the common. Its twigs were barren, as if burnt. In winter, leaves break from the stems and white flowers unfurl. Mm. Beautiful, 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 Yvonne. Thank you. Good night. So, Sam, uh, let's get back to the world of blogging. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I started blogging at the New York Times in 2007 on top of my conventional journalism because I felt that the issues around me were so multidimensional that a simple news article doesn't just can't capture it and and can actually distort reality again as we were saying earlier the news is all the things that are bad you end up conveying the a flawed picture and the other aspect of blogging that drew me through dot earth my blog was uh, it was multi-directional it was not just me putting out article after article it was in interrogatory and open and and applied in my own thinking that I don't know everything. <laughs> and uh, as a reporter, uh, you know, we're too simplistically think, oh, okay, now we got the story. <laughs> and, and, and it's by having that, that kind of exchange function, I learned so much more. I, I kept calling myself, if you search online, if you Google for selfish blogger and my name Revkin, you'll find a lot of stuff I wrote because everything that I was learning and, and, and unlearning so I'd love to hear from you. I'm going to show up, show your blog again in a second. I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about why you do this particular form, where, where you're drawing together a lot of content that isn't your own, you know, saying, here, you really need to read this, and this is why, that kind of stuff. So what's your blogging philosophy, and and uh, what's you know what do you hope for with your audience and, and the like? 
Well, thank you for the question. It's a good question. A lot of possible answers. Um, first, I just want to say I love the selfish blogger thing because that's how I feel too. Like, I feel like having a blog is a great excuse to get to talk to interesting people. Like, um, uh, just to start with, like, I get to like say, hey, can I interview you for my blog? And it's much, and it's much more sort of, um, I, I do a lot of interviews too. This is my news roundup. And it's much more sort of likely to get a Zoom meeting than, hi, I just find you interesting. Want to chat? Which is cool, but, you know, people are busy. And, 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 and having a blog is a great way to just learn about people doing fascinating stuff and share their stories. Like, I've been able to meet scientists around the world doing fascinating stuff. A guy in, a guy in uh, the University of Bristol working on, you know, sec, uh, on uh, connecting fungi and electronics to, to create living environmental sensors that can replace with computers. There's a whole bunch of just fascinating work going on. And then just this fascinating stories like this one. Uh, a fleet of drones picking apples in Chile. Um, that that um, th and there's there's these things that almost sort of fade into the foreground. Like there's tons and tons of stories in many newspapers about the rise of uh, farm bots recently. Um, robots that can do agricultural work. That part of the broader stories like the rise of batteries and AI and a bunch of other technologies. But like people people um often will, but that never makes the headlines because it's always sort of below the threshold of notice for being the most dramatic thing. Like Stephen Pinker in Enlightenment Now, he said, like, if there was a headline once a year, it would say stuff like, these five amazing new technologies were invented, and this many hundreds of thousands of people rose out of poverty in South Asia. Like, like, but but there's always some kind of tragedy, that, and, and tragedies are awful, and they should be reported on, but there's right. always some horrible thing that sort of draws all the eyeballs and the attention. And there's often really fascinating, positive stuff, people working hard to create a better world that doesn't get nearly enough attention. So I'm just trying to sort of curate um, some of the interesting things, some of the interesting ongoing threads um, that I'm noticing and show them with people. And I've found that it's really rewarding. And a lot of people have said they've found it um, really interesting. And I feel like doing it since 2017 now has really yeah. given me some, some perspective almost in seeing, wow, actually, in many domains, things have gotten better. In 2017, we were saying, hey, can we possibly decarbonize the grid? And now I just saw an article, an article framed as a pessimistic article saying, well, of course we can decarbonize the grid. That's definitely going to happen. But is there any chance we can decarbonize heavy industry like steel and cement and stuff? And, you know, I'm already seeing stories about people starting to find ways to decarbonize um, um, cemented steel. Like there's electric like furnaces making steel with a startup called Boston Metal. And in Sweden, and in Sweden they're using hydrogen as the power source for steel, like the heat source. So there's just a bunch of fascinating work going on that people that really like... Um, doesn't get buried so much as ignored. Right. Like I, I got all. It's not. I, I'm not saying like the media is ignoring this. I got all these stories from the media. Like, right. like, but but they don't like they don't penetrate people's consciousness in the same way. And I think part of it is because on any given day, most of the stories on the headlines will be negative. So like that sort of adds up to a feeling that things are generally negative. And what I'm trying to do is sort of pick out all the positive stuff that's scattered in there, but on every single day gets sort of counterbalanced by too much negative, just sort of put it all together and say, look, there's actually a lot of positive. Look at all this cool stuff. So I'm trying to present really um, a more balanced and 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 I think um, a, a more balanced perspective of how the world's going. And I'm trying to say, like I said earlier, that there actually is some amazing stuff happening. Like solar, solar, solar technology is now the cheapest electricity in history. Declined in price by over by like over eighty five percent since twenty ten. There's amazing, amazing global, amazing global uptake of, of renewable technologies. It's it's going exponential. It's incredible, and we're getting tons of new cool renewable technologies too, like enhanced geothermal, where instead of just using an underground hot water deposit, you inject water underground to create your own hot water deposit, which means you can do it anywhere. You can find a hot water deposit. Um, 
like enhanced geothermal just got connected to the U.S. grid for the first time in like September in, in, in Nevada as right. part of a project with Volvo uh, Energy and Google, and they're working on a 400 megawatt facility in Utah. Like this amazing stuff happening. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there was a Jerry Seinfeld special a while ago where he said like, um, and obviously politics is incredibly important too. The Biden administration has done incredible work in promoting renewables, but um, I, I'm not, 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 um, not understating that at all. But there was a Jerry Seinfeld comedy special, I think a while ago, where he said like, do any of you remember voting on smartphones? This, this totally changed our lives. When did we decide that exactly? And like occasionally, um, occasionally really huge societal changes happen and somehow it just flips from being unthinkable to normal and it seems like you can't tell exactly when. Right. And we are at that exact point right now with clean energy. Like I've already seen, and I strongly disagree with this, but I've already seen like some environmental groups flipping straight from um, we totally need to go to clean energy at all costs to there's too much solar being built. It's a blight on the landscape. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you were talking about a climate crisis a minute ago. Like, in, like and I think that's because, you know, some some entities um, sort of exist as an oppositional framework meant to sort of oppose things. And that's really useful if you're opposing fossil fuel projects, but it turns into a negative if you're opposing clean energy projects. And um, like Bill McKibben has been great on this. He's off at the founder of 350.org. He wrote a great Mother Jones article saying it's time to embrace the green building boom because we are having a green building boom. We are having right. manufacturing has doubled since the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in 2022. There is just... When there was a when I was a kid, there was this Tom Friedman book that used to be us about how America has fallen behind in China on infrastructure and stuff. And China's still building lots of clean energy, but now we are too. We're really we're really doing right. big things and making and really having a huge global um, decarbonization shift. And it's yeah. going way faster than even the most optimistic predictors w w would have expected. And I think this reminds me. Expectations. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, this reminds me of uh, one of Ed's points I think through the years, which is. Uh, that uh, individual action and decisions can matter uh, enormously. Uh, I'm I'm showing everyone Efficiency Maine's website for heat pumps because Maine, where I, I moved to Maine uh, two years ago with my wife uh, to be near her mother, uh, who's 91 and lives in a tiny lobster village where she was born, and, and during you know early in the depression, and she she just bought a heat pump. Uh, she's low income, uh, you know, on a really tight budget, but the heat pump is going to help her get off of oil and lower her, her, um, her energy costs. Uh, she's still getting used to the idea. She, she, she was using it initially when the air condition it was still hot at the end of the summer. And I think there's still this sense of you need a flame to be, to be warm. Right. But, 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 but to think that my mother, my mother-in-law, you know, for her, it was normal for her to buy a heat pump. And um, because this is pre, uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is really slowly rolling out. This was just Maine's own incentives already, but that's a wonderful sign. So Ed, you know, that gets back to your points about local action, sp spreading the, 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 spreading the, you, what you do in your own life to, to your neighbors and the like, what do you think about that? I think it's very important. You know, there's not time to go door to door for this stuff. So I applaud my friends who do Greenpeace and others who do go door to door. There's a place for that. But we have to use the media, use it responsibly, because I feel like a performer. People always say, you know, you're a performer. We don't want to hear from you. We want to hear from the scientists. But if you are, in fact, a performer, you're about to do a song and dance on stage. And the fire marshal taps you on the shoulder. Excuse me, what is it? And he tells you there's a fire in the basement, not to panic people, but row by row to eventually evacuate. You know, it's just smoldering at this point. But we need to get people out in a timely manner. Go, thanks for sharing that, Mr. Fire Marshal. Uh, time for my song and dance. 
you know, da, 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 da. How could you possibly do that? You wouldn't do that. You do what the fire marshal said. That's, the fire marshal is a union of concerned scientists. The fire marshal are all those wonderful Nobel Prize winning people I've gotten to know at that organization and others who tell us that what's really going on with air quality, with what's more efficient in the form of wind turbines and solar panels, what have you. They're studying in a very careful way. They're publishing in peer-reviewed journals and what have you, so we know it's good science. And that's what we need to do. We can, as private citizens, you know, do whatever we do in our free time. And I'm, I wrote this memoir that's more entertaining than anything else. Uh, and I hope it's entertaining, but also, you know, to get the message out there and, uh, you know, because we need to make people know that there are solutions and there is good news. And I love that you keep emphasizing that, Sam, because it's very important. We had a problem with CFCs years ago is destroying the ozone layer. We had a big hole in the ozone. They stopped making CFCs. They said, the, the opponent said, you'll never be able to afford an air conditioner again. You'll never be able to afford a refrigerator. I've looked in the paper. I'm told they're still selling air conditioners and refrigerators, and it didn't cost that much more for either, you know, and it worked. And they did a big, uh, huge amount of progress with that ozone hole <coughs> and the ozone depletion. More good news. We had the Cuyahoga River catching fire near Cleveland, the Santa Barbara oil right. spill. That doesn't happen. The Santa Barbara oil spill kind of thing still happens. It happened in the Gulf and elsewhere. But the, the Cuyahoga River does not catch fire anymore because we made changes with the Clean Water Act, also signed by Richard Nixon, of all people. So we can do this together. It has to be bond, bipartisan, nonpartisan, and we can do it. Just get people out there using the media responsibly with your wonderful poetry. There's nothing better than the arts talking about a good message, something like the environment. So I love that you melded those two, Yvonne. Just beautiful. And again, Sam, the Thank way you. you're spreading the word. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I, I want to ask now. I want to go around about about one last thing, which is um, some of the skills and, and practices you all have when you think about how how to spread them. Um, or what would you suggest, Sam? You know, with you with blogging, um, like with me, you know, I, I've been trying to run these shows for three and a half years now since the pandemic. On a big chunk of them are on thriving online, like how to make the most of this noisy, polluted information system um if you had do you have any suggestions like and i don't know how you fit your blog into your work life and the like too so for young people who want to communicate who want to share good ideas do you have advice for how to do that and how to make it part of a life and how to make it practically part of a life uh, you know what are the barriers what are your hopes well uh excellent question uh number one would be do it for you and don't expect to make money. So, um, so uh, yeah, so I have only ever indirectly made money from my blog, really. I have paid subscriptions, and I'm trying to ramp that up. I would love to do more paid content. But primarily, the way that's been useful to my career is just by being able to point to prospective employers and say, look, I've done this every week for years. I'm, I'm, I care about this issue, and I have a work ethic and stuff. So, like, it's been of indirect use. And it's sort of just become my resume over time. Like, I have a resume, but a lot, but, but like, I put, I put, like, links to my maps on there and all sorts of stuff. And I think it can be a blog or any kind of online presence or, or poetry or art or whatever your field is can be really useful in just sort of demonstrating that you care about something enough to do it. But um, I definitely think, you know, don't quit your day job. Like, um, so, so like definitely have a, a, a media platform where you can have a voice to, in, in whatever medium or format you want to do that to talk about things you care about. And I think that is great. And I think that will really help you in your career and in your life and in your, 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 your human spirit. 
But um, yeah. Um, oh, this is a this is a great map and a bad example because I did this one for free. I did this one just for fun. <laughs> with, um, but uh, um, yeah. Um, but it shows you. I, I like the idea of sharing your work. In, in other words, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So hey, um, sorry. So yeah. And what are so what are what are you doing? You're working for the state of Maine right now, or? Actually, I'm a freelancer, and I, 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 I technically I'm my own business. Like I'm Sam Maddie GIS Consulting on my on my taxophone, and I do uh, freelance mapping projects for the state of Maine and several other clients, including uh, Third Nature Investments, Sustainometrics, the Ocean Foundation, and some others. So, um, yeah, so, like I, I actually a bunch of my recent maps aren't on here. I have a new post with a bunch of my maps from 2023 coming out in later December. Great. But, um, uh, but yeah, actually, um, if you just go to uh, Maine.gov slash climate plan slash dashboard. That was my big project for Maine for uh, sort of the last quarter of 2023 was um, this dashboard of maps about some of the progress Maine has been doing on stuff, including the efficiency Maine heat pumps. Just uh, I took some of that data and made sort of a geospatial format. And uh, so, yeah, this is where it's, this is how it is when it's embedded in the page. If you go further, further down to the bottom, there's a place where you can open it in its own window. Um, if you open the dashboard in your browser. And oh, this great. is, uh, and, um, if you go to any of them, there's just a bunch. Of, there's just a bunch of different visualizations of all the cool stuff that's been happening lately in Maine. So yeah, here's like an overall view of some of the cool stuff that Maine has built in the Mills oh. administration. Um, and if, and um, as with pretty much all of my um, visual web maps like this, if you click on the icons, you get more information, and you can zoom, pan, find your area, all sorts of stuff. Wow. Um, so um, this is so this is what I do for a living, basically. But you know, having an environmental blog really helps me get projects like this because it shows that I really know my stuff and I care about it, and I'm kind of devoted to working on this on on these issues. So, um, but but yeah, like sort of the skill the skill that is my job is GIS uh, mapping and analysis with stuff like this. And this wow. is just a, a, a visual thing that which is great. Um, there's also some more analysis heavy things like calculating sort of EV rebates for Bolson by main town and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a, a whole bunch of other things. So, well, um, this, this is such an important part of the, you know, spreading the gospel of change is, uh, you know, look what's happening right across our state. And, and, you know, if you're in Vermont you say, wow, we should do this too, or having that connectivity and, and, and the data at hand so you can zoom in and, and then, and then having the practical reality going to efficiency maine or whatever the equivalent is in another state to get your rebate um, and to learn where the jobs are you know there's shortages of electricians and and all the people who are needed to uh, to to drive the actual works so i just think this is great and um, the more we can highlight the data as well as the good news um, this is all part of the good news yeah so and yeah, electricians, absolutely. I have an article in my drafts folder about that that I'm in the process of writing. If you really want to help fight climate change, become an electrician. We need more electricians. That's right. Um, so so yeah, like like um, this is actually a golden age for blue collar work, actually, in a lot of ways. Like um we've automated lighting well before we've automated plumbing or electricity. So um uh so I think um I, I think honestly, and given that everyone here is an author or writer of some sort, this is probably a really unpopular opinion, but I'm kind of trying to mentally prepare myself for it because it's unpopular for me too. I think there's an excellent chance that writing becomes something that it is impossible to really get paid for doing much in the next 50 years, that it becomes more like knitting or something, that it is that it is like a hobby, but not a career. And I think that's okay. 
because this also because it can still be fulfilling and there can still be incredible human creation, human connection and 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 a, a discourse and a dialogue with the classics and all the amazing stuff we love about lighting as part of our hobbyist community. And maybe part of, part of that, what that means is a bit of a shift of sort of the intellectualization of work over the last few years. If you can have endless AI-generated advertising content or even AI-generated summaries of news or, or science papers or something, maybe that means people shift back to being more electricians or community gardeners or therapists or one-on-one -on -one tutors or a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, uh, sometimes I joke that the, one of the big things I do with my newsletter is collecting a list of people who uh, know who I am so that they remember that this is someone who's not an AI. Um, so, uh, so, the, so the, this is actually a human who's, who's, who's writing, but sorry, that's AI, that's, a, that's a keeping that, but, um, yeah, but, um, the humanness of us all. Yeah. yeah but, um, but, but like, I'm with this to say, I'm actually really excited about AI and some of its potential for science, but, um, but like, but yeah, I think, uh, um, what I would encourage for young people is flexibility is, uh, don't take on student debt. I was very fortunate enough to avoid that. Um, um, and be sort of open to experience, try new things, take risks, take experiments. Don't like bet everything on, I will definitely do this and this will definitely become my career. Do stuff if you think it would be valuable and fun and interesting and you want to do it, give it a try. If it grows, double down on it. If it doesn't, try something else. So I would encourage uh, flexibility, open-mindedness and experimentation, basically. How does that feel, Yvonne, from the standpoint of your, your focus on creative writing? Yeah, fantastic. I think it's wonderful to have uh, so many options and ideas ahead of you. I've got quite a few colleagues who are branching out into teaching people how to write gaming narrative, um, who are experimenting with AI to write poems. And um, it all sounds like a really, really fascinating new frontier for us. Um, but and, you, and you've also done film. I have, yeah. I think this is a, an important medium. Where is this, by the way? Mountain hares are Britain's only true Arctic alpine mammal. This is in the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland, um, yeah. and you can you can see the rest of it on, on YouTube. They were here before right, any right, other right. species of hare or rabbit. So thanks so much for showing that clip. Um, in terms of practical things that people can do, uh, whether that's through weight, raising awareness by using the arts and media and writing, or whether that's actually taking practical action. Um, what I heard about with uh, Alex Demansky, the filmmaker who, who filmed this and directed it, was you know, that the mountain hair ecologist we spoke to was saying, 
people can restore the moorland vegetation. Um, something I mentioned in the article that we put out to accompany the film okay. is tree planting. Very, very simple, very local, very cheap. You know, I've got a load of acorns on my balcony that I've taken from an oak tree that are going to go in little pots this spring. I even have some poems about planting trees and literally raising little oaks from seed in my book. It's so, so simple just to take these very, very small practical steps. Everybody can do their bits. And there's something I really do love about planting um, and growing and nurturing things. Um, I think it's absolutely wonderful to plant trees. It's it's just so fascinating. I think children should do it. Grown-ups should do it. It's for everyone. Great. Well, you've all planted trees uh, symbolically and practically speaking, I think, uh, by by in innovating as communicators, by taking your um, your prominence as a public figure and an actor and, and bringing in environmental progress uh, and 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 the and passion and and a sense of purpose beyond um, the simple things that we do to get through life. So I'm really appreciative that you've all been able to join this uh, informal little get together here at the end of a an extraordinary year and and in this emerging era, the Anthropocene or whatever you want to call it. You know, back in 1992, when I wrote that book where I talked about the Anthropocene, basically uh, it was goofy. I didn't know there were technical words like putting anthropo instead of Anthropocene. But but I was uh, talking about the reality that Earth has become a um, place that will be shaped henceforth by one species. Uh, you know, and it's not the first time uh, cyanobacteria, these little plants, changed the planet profoundly. There was a great oxygen catastrophe when photosynthesis emerged and they they made life really hard for for uh, yeah, the organisms that had grown up in a uh, in, an environment without oxygen and but we the, the weird thing is we know it I mean we're starting to understand it. and that's you know picture that's like we're looking around going oh wow we really are um, a force a, a global force we're changing the chemistry of the oceans the atmosphere we're changing climate and how we deal with that uh, creatively um, how we incorporate those questions into our daily lives and our work is uh, really important and especially uh, integrating across the complexities you know your relationship with your dad um yvonne you know through um, his fossil fuel interest and then but getting the the natural wonder and, and love uh, that you shared that's uh, really special and ed it's just great to see you again and good luck with your book um and uh with your work going forward uh both the, the humor and the, the acting and the activism. And Sam, I'm really glad I found you on our Substack universe. Uh, I'm, at, I'm there too, revkin.substack.com, and you're at sammatty.substack.com, as I showed the uh, thing before. And maybe we can uh, revisit sometime. Um, I hope you're, you're at the end of your years is, this year is, is thriving and bountiful for all of you. And uh, this is a uh, sustain what? webcast you can subscribe as i said a minute ago and i'm just going to keep these conversations going as long as i can I, I don't get paid for this anymore i used to be at columbia university now i'm just a semi-retired uh, journalist who who likes to share um, and shape ideas using conversations so that's what sustain what is about and um thanks again good luck with your have a good day too thank you so much everybody thanks thank you so much.
lovely to meet you. Lovely. Lovely to meet you, Sam. You two of 